Amen. Well, good morning, church. My name is Greg Brazil. I'm the uh, North Campus pastor. Uh, Going to be with you this morning. If you're a guest, we're glad you're here. Uh, we are in this uh, fairly lengthy series in the book of Matthew. If you've been with us for the couple, last couple of weeks, we're looking um, at the, the early life of Jesus and the things that happen around, his, uh, around the birth when he kind of first comes on the scene. Uh, you have all of these um, angels and you have these visions and you have these dreams and wise men show up and stars are moving. All these strange things are happening and you read this and you have to admit that it's not usually like this. Uh, so I have three sons and at their birth no angels showed up. Uh, maybe some demons but there were no angels uh, around whenever they showed up. Um, we didn't get gold and frankincense and essential oils. We just got Target gift cards and uh, some huggies. That's kind of all that, uh, that we had. Uh, but this child is is different. This is God among us. This is Emmanuel. This is the Word made flesh that came to dwell among us. And whenever he shows up, everything notices. Everything tends to bend around him or in some way respond to him because this child is utterly different and unique. Um, so last week we saw how uh, these wise men show up, these men from the, uh, from the east come to worship Jesus and lay their treasures down and, and give him gifts. But Herod, who is the ruler of this, over this area, uh, he's suspicious about this. And here's what happens in Matthew chapter uh, 2, if you have your Bible, if not, it'll be on the uh, screen behind us. But um, here's what happens in chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, we'll be in this morning uh, for just a bit. Here's what he says. I'll read it for us. Now, when they had departed, this is the the wise men. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, in the text, you've got, uh, you've got three kind of scenes or movements. You've got this uh, flight to Egypt uh, by Jesus, uh, uh, Joseph and his family. You have uh, Herod's massacre of the kids uh, under two years old, the males in that region under two years old. Then you have uh, this move to Nazareth. So three kind of movements in this text. You also have three um, Old Testament references. Uh, Matthew mentions um, uh, Hosea. He mentions Jeremiah. And he mentions somewhat generically the prophets. So three kind of movements, three text. So what does it all mean? Um, how, how do you, when you read this, what do you make, how, does you, how do you make sense of this? What does it mean uh, for us? What does God want to tell us um, in this? I think three things. Obviously, Matthew wanted that. So, um, so you see here three things. You see hatred from Herod. You see hope and you see grace. 
All right, so let me show you this morning uh, what this is. You see that Jesus is the object of, uh, of, uh, of hatred. He is the promise of hope, um, and he's the source of grace. All right, so I'll unpack those three for us, and then we'll uh, get you off to your place of lunch choice, whatever that ha- happens to be this morning. So um, here's what happens. Number one, uh, Jesus is the object of hate. Uh, so the wise men back in chapter two, they search out Jesus to go and worship him. Herod searches out Jesus to go and kill him. Uh, Herod is suspicious. He's jealous of anyone who might receive the worship he thinks that he deserves. And so he wants to go after Jesus and actually take his life and kill him uh, because he can't stand the idea of someone actually bowing down to a different king um, besides him. Now, historians note how Herod, Herod the Great, was a ruthless uh, ruler at this time. Uh, he would kill anyone who gets in his way. So there's, uh, uh, historians say that he even killed his favorite wife. Not his second favorite, but his favorite wife. He killed her. Um, I'm not sure why he did that. But anyone who stands in his way, he just snuffs them out and, and takes their life. And now he hears about one who would come and actually receive worship from wise men from the east. And he wants to actually go and kill them. He's so suspicious. In fact, Matthew says he goes and kills all the males in that region who are under, uh, who are two years old and under, which we'll uh, come back to in a bit. The point, though, here is that he hates Jesus. Um, his response to Jesus is one of utter hatred and suspicion, and he wants to take his life. Now, what I want you to see here is that though his response to Jesus is wrong, his intensity ab- about this is not So his response, his estimation of Jesus is absolutely wrong. He should not be hating Jesus. He should actually, in fact, with the wise men, go bow down to him and renovate his entire life uh, and build it on this uh, this king. Um, So his response is wrong. His intensity and his force, though, is not. He responds to Jesus with zeal and with passion and with the force. That response is right, in a sense. Now, what does that mean? Um, C.S. Lewis years ago wrote an essay called, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? And Lewis said that when you read the Gospels, um, you only see one of three responses to Jesus. You see terror, you see hatred, or you see adoration. Um, So either they were afraid of him, uh, they wanted to kill him, or they fell at his feet and they worshiped and adored him. But Lewis says what you never saw in the Gospels when it comes to Jesus was mild indifference. No one just liked him. No one just had this, this casual response to him. You either were, were scared out of your mind, you're freaking out over him, you want to kill him, or you fall at his feet and you worship and you treasure him. There was no sense, though, of somehow being neutral to Jesus or being on the fence about Jesus or just kind of having this casual response. No, you had to respond because Jesus is he's that polarizing, um, he's that offensive, Uh, The things he says, the things that he does, you cannot, as a thinking person, a rational person, you cannot be neutral to Jesus. There are some things in life you just can't remain neutral toward. Uh, There are some things that are just, they're too significant, uh, they're too awesome, they're too weighty just to be somehow in the middle. You must decide where you land on those things. Uh, there are hot button issues you and I have to somehow respond to. There are glorious things you and I have to respond to. So uh, just imagine some beautiful landscape or just an, an amazing sunset. No one's like, oh, it's fine. Could use some color, maybe some different trees here, maybe a rainbow. Come on, no rainbow. No one does that. They take your breath away. They're so awesome that you, you're stunned by certain things in this life, and you have to make a decision on that, and it just moves you, doesn't it? 
Jesus Christ is that way and even more so. Uh, he's so offensive, um, he's so severe at times, he's so demanding at times that you cannot just be in the middle, you cannot be on the fence, you cannot express this just mild indifference toward him because Jesus would eventually grow up and say things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I'm one with the Father, I'm the resurrection. The Jews were longing for resurrection. Jesus comes along and says, I'm the resurrection. I'm the truth. You want to follow me? Hate your father. Hate your mother. Hate your own life. Deny yourself. Take your cross. Then you can follow me. Who talks like that? And so Herod, though again, he's wrong in his estimation of Jesus, at least he's honest about Jesus. At least he knows you either have to crown him as king or you have to kill him. There is no other response to Jesus beyond that. Um, John Stott uh, once said in his little book, Basic Christianity, that our response to Jesus must be extreme. It cannot be half-hearted. It cannot be mild. You have to respond. He demands that you drop everything and lay down your life um, and come follow him. Uh, Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 10, uh, one of his more severe sayings. Um, He says, do not think. Because you might think this, you might be tempted to think what he's going to say here, but don't, he says. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. That's not why I came, Jesus says. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He says, I came to cut and carve and divide. He did not come to make peace with us or somehow bargain with us or bow down to our whims and our desires and our wishes. No, he came saying, you give everything to me. You drop everything, you lay your life down, and you place everything in my hands, that's how you come to me. Uh, He doesn't come bargaining with us saying, okay, I'll take some of your income, I'll take one of your hobbies and your diet, the rest is yours. No, he demands everything. So Jesus did not come on the scene, he did not come into this world to improve your life, he did not come to be your life coach, he did not come to make your life more comfortable, he did not come to make your life more spiritual. He had not come to help you find yourself and discover who you are and help you achieve your goals. That's not why he came. He came to shatter your categories. He did not come to you know, redecorate or remodel. He comes tearing the entire house down and starts all over. That's who this God is and what he demands of us. That we lay our life down and he offers us something utterly unique. He came to astonish and shock and amaze us with something that no one else in this world um, can offer to us. And that's why you cannot be neutral to him. Because here's the thing, he comes along not just, not just pointing to life like other religious teachers of the, of, the, you know, of, the, of the world have, just pointing there's the way to life, there's the way to truth, here's what the truth is. He comes pointing to himself and saying, I am truth. I am life. I am the way. Truth is a person. The way is a person. Life is a person. And so other religions say you need God to find uh, meaning and make sense of your life. Any religion out there, in a sense, is saying you to make sense of your life and have a have a meaningful, purposeful existence. You need to find God and obey what He wants. That's how your life. Every religion, in some way is telling you this is how you find life, is you find God and do what he says. Jesus comes along and says, without me, you have no life. 
Without me, you have no meaning. Without me, you certainly don't know who God is. I am meaning. I am life itself. And if you want that, you must come to me. You see why Herod hates him? You see why many today still hate him? And by the way, this is why Christianity can't be made up. No one will make this up. We'd make it easier. No one will make something this severe. That's why this can't be made up. If if whatever Christianity is, it cannot be just some manufactured idea by humans because we would never make it this hard. And Herod at least knows something about Jesus that you and I need to learn that is that you cannot be neutral to him. You either kill him or you crown him, but you cannot sit somewhere in the middle of this. And so if you're not a Christian this morning and you're kind of just still trying to figure out what it means to believe and what it means to uh, believe in God and, and trust in the Bible and do, do this Christianity thing. If, you're, if that's you this morning, you may end up hating Jesus. I hope you don't. We hope that you end up falling in love with him. You may end up, though, on, on one side of this, please don't ignore him. Please do not think that if you're a rational thinking person that you can somehow be mildly indifferent toward him and be casual in your response because you cannot do that. Please do not follow him alongside other religious teachers like um, Buddha and Muhammad and Gandhi and Plato or whoever it is. That's not what he came for. Um, In fact, Lewis says in that same little essay, uh, Lewis says that if you were to ask Muhammad, are you one with Allah? Are you one with God? And Lewis says he would have first have torn his clothes, then cut your head off because that's blasphemy. You don't talk that way about yourself in relation to God. Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm one with him. You want to come to the Father, you come, you come through me first. And that's why, at least in some sense, Herod wants to destroy. He knows that this child is utterly different. And if you are a Christian, notice how your joy tends to rise and fall on your affections and your allegiance to Jesus you notice that? That when you're pursuing him, you're running hard after him, you're, just, you're waking up and you are centering all of your life around him. Notice how your life just has more vigor despite your circumstances. Um, you tend to move through life with a spring in your step and you're, you, know, you just feel light. There's a sense of you're focused on him and life just stops mattering so much and you just move through that. When you get away from him though, you feel it, don't you? Because um, then you're more insecure and you need approval more, and you're, you know, someone criticizes you, and it tends to hurt and bother you and get in your head more. Uh, things of the world like sinful pleasure, sexual sin, gaining tons of money, uh, gossip, slander, all of those things are more appealing. You want to know why? Because you're made to feast on Jesus, and if you don't, you'll find food somewhere else. You'll find something, some other table to pull yourself up to and feast on that, You must respond passionately with force and zeal. You cannot be um, in the middle when it comes to uh, when it comes to this God. All right, so that's one. He is the object of hate. Uh, Herod hates him, but at least he's honest in saying you have to respond to him. Uh, But secondly, and more positively, so if you're depressed right now, it'll get better. All right, so number two um, is he is the promise of hope. Now, here's where we got to dig a little bit, so I need you to sip some coffee, lean in here, because this kind of gets pretty technical with what Matthew's doing here. There are massive volumes written on just these few sections. I'll condense it down uh, as best as I can. So um, Matthew quotes uh, here, he quotes two Old Testament passages. He quotes Hosea. And he quotes the, uh, the book of Jeremiah. So Hosea chapter 11 and Jeremiah 31, Matthew quotes both of those here. 
Now, whenever you go back and read those quotes in Hosea and Jeremiah, you don't tend to think, oh, this means Jesus. Clearly, this is about Jesus. You don't really think that. Um, but as Christians, we read our Bibles from, uh, from the, the very back of it to the front. Uh, we start at the end and read backward. It's like the movie The Sixth Sense. Have you watched that? He's dead the whole time. It's amazing. So if you haven't watched it, spoiler um, alert, but you've had time, okay? He's dead the whole time and you don't even know it. So the first time you watch it, you don't see it. You watch it again. You're like, oh, how do we, my gosh, how do we miss all these signs along the way? He was dead the whole time. And you read the Bible, when Jesus comes on the scene and uh, dies and rises, all these things happen. The early Christians, they look back in the Old Testament and they thought, how do we miss this? This whole thing was beckoning for him, was calling out to him all these promises, all these prophecies, all of these um, themes of the Old Testament. They're all calling out and foreshadowing and pointing to this one who would come and rescue us. And so the themes like exile, themes of the kings and suffering, all the promises, all the prophecy, all of this sense that God would revisit Israel one day and rescue them, all this now comes true um, in Jesus. And Matthew is showing us uh, just a picture of that. So uh, here's what Matthew does. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, uh, whenever Joseph takes his family with Jesus down to Egypt, uh, and he remains there until Herod dies, then comes back out of Egypt. Um, Matthew says that this fulfilled what the prophets had spoken. Um, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you go back in Hosea, that text is about Israel. Um, so what happened in, uh, a little Bible history here, what happened in Egypt? We just preached on this like two years ago, so you should remember that. Okay, we, we preached on the fact that in Exodus, the Israelites are in uh, slavery in Egypt, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let Israel go so they can go and worship the Lord um, on, the, on the place where he wants to establish them. And Pharaoh says, I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And so Moses says, oh, no, you didn't. That's in the Hebrew. Um, and so God unleashes all of this wrath out on Egypt, all these plagues and things. Then here's the thing. They pass through water. Right, the Red Sea parts, and God brings them out, kills all the Egyptians, very you know, warm uh, bedtime story. God kills them all, brings them out. They go in the wilderness. Moses goes up on the mountain, Okay, gets the law of God. He comes down. They wander 40 years in the desert there. Uh, God's testing them, and then God sends them to the promised land, into Israel, and 12 tribes are formed in the nation of Israel. Matthew says Jesus is fulfilling all of that. Jesus is embodying and fulfilling and identifying with the story of Israel's past because he applies that text to Jesus. That just the way that God called Israel, his son, out of Egypt, um, God has now called his son out of Egypt. And then eventually, we'll see in a few weeks, Jesus goes through water. Right? He's baptized in Matthew chapter 4. Then he goes out in the desert for 40 days where he is tested for 40 days. Then he chooses 12 disciples, all right? 12, that's a big number for the Israelites. Then goes up on the mountain, Matthew 5, gives his law. You see what's happening here? He's identifying with the story and the history of Israel. He's fulfilling, he's resolving all those tensions. Everything now is being resolved um, in Jesus, and this verse is what starts that. Now, the other one is not as easy as that. So, uh, Matthew chapter 2, um, he quotes Jeremiah 31. 
So what happens here is after Herod sends and kills the males uh, uh, to and under in, uh, in the region, Matthew says that that brought to fulfillment what happened in Jeremiah 31, um, and that fulfilled that text. Verse 18 says that a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So when Herod kills the children, Matthew goes back into Jeremiah 31 and says that text is now fulfilled. And the question is, what is happening with this passage? How in the world can this massacre of these innocent children um, fulfill what goes on in Jeremiah 31? Well, what, what Jeremiah 31 is, uh, the, the context is the exile um, so if you know your Bible kind of history, this is when the Babylonians come in and destroy the nation of Israel, um, and they bring them into exile into Babylon for 70 years. And in, in Jeremiah 31, Rachel is kind of the, the mother of the nation, as it were. Her children is Israel. They're weeping. They're about to be taken into exile to be enslaved for 70 years, and there's lamentation, and there's weeping and crying, and they are suffering, and Matthew's going back and saying it's just like in that time in exile is how it is now when Herod kills all these children. Um, So Richard Hayes, who is a New Testament scholar, says that when Matthew uh, quotes Jeremiah 31 here after Herod's massacre. What he's doing is he is using um, this as a, a, a metaphor for the entire nation's suffering. Because in Jesus' day, if you've, you, know, you read the Gospels, the first few chapters of the Gospels, and it's pretty clear that they're still in, a, in exile in a sense. They're in Israel, but they're still being ruled by wicked people like Herod and by Pontius Pilate and by Caesar. They're still under oppression. They're marginalized. They're oppressed. They're longing for God to come back and visit them um, and free them from their enemies and set them free. They're not free in this time. And Herod's massacre is one more reminder of their enslavement, um, of their brokenness, of the fact they're still in exile and Matthew's saying this is starting, the, the, the ice is beginning to melt. That now this promise is being fulfilled because here's what happens. Whenever you read, um, read this passage, Jesus clearly escapes this. Okay, Herod's trying to kill him, but Jesus escapes. So Joseph jukes him. He goes into Egypt and he's saved through all this. This is the promised child. This is God's anointed, God's Messiah. This is Harry Potter. Voldemort can't touch him. Get out of here. You can't, you can't lay a hand on him. This child's being kept, being preserved. This is the promised child. And as long as he is alive, there's hope. In fact, here's what's interesting. The, whenever you read, um, well, scholars point out that whenever you, whenever the, old, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, um, usually the context is in mind. Um, usually, whenever Matthew, so when Matthew quotes the Old Testament, he is assuming um, that his readers know the context of Jeremiah 31. And here's what's fascinating: when you read this, Jeremiah 31, right after the part where uh, where uh, the Rachel weeping section is, here's what God says to the nation of Israel back in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31:16 through 17. Thus says the Lord: Keep your voice from weeping. All right, they're weeping, they're in Rama, they're on the verge of exile, they're about to be taken off against their will to another land. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. God's sake, 
I will bring you back. I will come and get you. I will bring you back out of exile, back to your land. And verse 17 says this, there is hope for your future. It's one of the best phrases of the entire Bible. There's hope for your future. Some of you came in this morning and you have lost hope. You have lost any sense that tomorrow or next month or next year will have any good in it. And you need to hear this passage that there is hope for your future. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care what's happened, what's suffering, what chaos and darkness is around you. Because it was dark in that day. And God's saying, I promise you there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. And so despite all of their sin and brokenness and rebellion, God's going to revisit Israel, bring them back to their land, reestablish them. And Jeremiah 31 is all about the new covenant. God would write his law on their hearts and love them forever and never leave them and never forsake them. And Matthew's saying, get ready, that's happening. Because now this promised child, this one who went down to Egypt and he identifies with all of Israel's past, all their story, he's now on the scene. All these promises now are being fulfilled. He is the hope of Israel, but not just for Israel, for all those who believe in him. This is your story as well. If you believe in him, if you know him, that's what he does for you as well. He reaches back into your past And all that brokenness and all that chaos, all those things you're now ashamed to even think about and talk about, he reaches back into that and brings redemption and hope and joy and renewal to all those things, and he fills your future with hope. That's what he does. And so if you came in this morning and you're you're hopeless and you think that, yeah, you don't know my situation, well, look at this situation. This is when soldiers kick open doors and walk in and try to find all the boys to and under and slaughter them. Innocent children are suffering at the hands of wicked men. Why didn't God do something? Why didn't some angel, there's tons of angels here, why didn't an angel show up and give them all dreams and visions and say, hey, he's going to kill you, get out. We don't know that. We don't know why God didn't break in and stop the entire thing. What we do know is, is this all this that was happening was not pointless. It was not without purpose. It was not without promise. It was not without some divine plan. God is working even in the midst of this. Because here's the thing, there's 500 years of prophecy behind that one event. The slaughter that Herod, we kills all the, the, the children there, there's prophecy and Bible behind that. And listen, if you know that, you can endure anything in this life. If you know that there is purpose, that there is intention, that there is something God is doing behind the scenes in all the midst of chaos and darkness, if you know that, you can endure anything in this life. I don't care how dark your story is. I don't care how dark your past is. I don't care how broken things are right now. If you know him, as long as he is alive, there is hope. If you believe that, you can move through anything. Here's how Romans 8 says this, and I want to clarify something with this. Romans 8, you've heard this verse. It's somewhere in your house in a frame or on a coffee cup or something. You've heard it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what that text does not say is that all things are good because they are not. Nowhere does the Bible say that the sufferings that you and I go through, that when someone comes in and kills innocent children, that if you lose your job, that if you 
someone gets cancer, if you lose a loved one, if there's childlessness, so all those things, those things are not good. Nowhere does God proclaim over those things that they are good. That's not what the text is saying. Those things are, are painful. Those things are broken. That's not how they're supposed to be. What the text is saying, though, is that God is weaving, God is working, God is writing all of these things together for your good. All those events, all things means all things. The big things, the small things, insignificant things, the glorious things, the painful things, the horrendous things, everything that happens, God is working this mysterious, divine, glorious plan for your good, for your flourishing, for your endurance. So that means whatever he sends your way, whatever he takes from you, whatever he wants from you, it is for your good. And if you know that, and if you believe that, and if you just dig your heels in and hold on to that, you can face no matter what this life throws at you. By the way, this is how you overcome two major hurdles, I think, for for Christians to deal with, anxiety and bitterness. Because anxiety says God might not get it right. It looks in the future and says this situation, this scenario, this Whatever's out there, God might not get that right. He might miss this. I could just not be in God's plan. or God might not get it right. So you're anxious. You kind of feed on that. Bitterness, though, looks back and says God got it wrong. This relationship, this situation, this career path, this house, this whatever, whatever it was, God got it wrong. So now you're bitter about what God has done in your life. This, though, keeps you from that. You see that? If he's working all things for good, then yes, you may have a, a, be tempted to warn anxiety, but you know, God, whatever happens, though it may be painful, God's going to bring good in this. Whatever happened in the past, God is working and moving and weaving and writing all of this for good. If you believe that, that's how you resist anxiety, which is future-focused, and bitterness, which is about the past, that's how you resist those things. Knowing his plan right now, though it's painful at times, It's mysterious, it gets dark at times, it gets grimy and messy at times. It is always, always being worked for your good and your flourishing in this life and certainly in the next. I'm reading uh, recently, currently, uh, Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. Uh, I was just intrigued by that. He's not a Christian. Uh, He talks like one, sounds kind of like one sometimes, sometimes. Um, and he uh, seems to like the Bible, seems to be fond of Christianity. But one of the things that he, uh, that he says that kind of upsets everyone is that one of the ideas he challenges is that he says our main pursuit in life is, not, is, is happiness. He challenges the idea that some would say that you find meaning in life if you're happy. He says it's wrong. Uh, that, our, that we find meaning in life, our highest pursuit in life is to find a sense of meaning and purpose despite suffering. That if you can look at suffering and all the chaos and brokenness around you and inside of you and still have a sense of joy and purpose and gratitude, your life then has meaning. That's our pursuit, he says. We're trying our best to find some sense of, of purpose in the midst of suffering. And I read that, I'm like, man, sign this guy up. Sounds like Paul, sort of. Canadian Paul, it's amazing. He's talking Bible here, okay? Now, the one thing he obviously lacks is a promised and crucified and risen Savior. And that's how I think you endure the chaos and the sufferings of this life, knowing that he's working for good, 
that he's for you, not against you, that he has purpose, he has intention, he has promise behind all the events that happen in your life, and he will bring those for your good. That's how you endure. That's how you hold on. And so what are you anxious about right now? What is just filling your mind and and making your heart feel so insecure right now? Would you believe that he's working everything for you? Just let go and trust that he is working everything for your good. What are you looking back on and just harboring bitterness about toward God, anger towards him, anger toward others, that God got this wrong? God didn't get it wrong. You may have done some things that were wrong, but God has not gotten it wrong for you. God is working his plan, and you will look back at some point in your life, and you will say, yes, it's good. He is good, and he does good, and you believe that. You have that kind of hope in your life, by the way? Can you stare at the the most chaotic, broken situation and still hold your ground and say, "I, I believe and I trust that this God, this promised son, is working all these things for my good? That's, that's how you make it in this life. All right, third, and I'll be quick here, um, is that Jesus, he is the source of grace. And there's one more reference that uh, Matthew makes to the Old Testament, and it's somewhat generic. Uh, so what happens, uh, Herod dies, they come back from Egypt, uh, come out of Egypt, and they go to Israel, but Joseph is afraid because Herod's son Archelaus is on the throne. He's just as wicked as his dad was. And so Joseph um, is warned in a dream, and then he ends up going to Galilee, and which is a pretty small area. I've, I've been around there. And then an even smaller area is Nazareth, this tiny little speck uh, on the map of a city. That's where they go. And whenever that happens, verse 23 says that he lives there so that what was spoken by the prophets, just generically the, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those guys, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, the problem with this verse for us to interpret is that there is no text that we are, anyone's aware of where a prophet says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. Uh, there is no one verse you can point to and say, yep, that one right there is what he's quoting. He's not quoting a verse, apparently. Uh, so I read about five commentaries on the book of Matthew this, uh, this past week and on this section. On this verse, they all say, good luck with that verse. I mean, not really, but in a sense, it's like, we don't really know exactly what's happening here. There are all kinds of theories on this. Here's what I think is happening. Um, the prophets were clear on one thing about the Messiah, for sure, that he would be uh, marginalized, he would be despised, he would be rejected, he would be um, forsaken and stricken, and, and just he would be looked at as just utter uh, scum of the earth. And if that's, if that's true, what Matthew is quoting is not a verse but an idea, and it's that idea. And Nazareth was a great place for someone like that. If you're from Nazareth, okay, you are despised and marginalized and rejected. No one takes you seriously. Um, They just left Egypt, right, by the way. They just left this massive city with all these buildings, all the glories of Egypt. Now they're in Nazareth. It's like going from Dallas to Odessa. It's not wrong. If you're from there, well done. You made it out, all right? You're safe now, okay? You know what I'm talking about. It's this tiny little insignificant seemingly place, and that's where the Messiah grows up. So here's what's happening. Here is the king of glory. Here is God the Son who existed before the world was, 
um, who's one with the Father, who John 1 says all things were made through him, and yet he descends down into a little baby and ends up going to Nazareth, and that's where he spends at least the first 30 years of his life in utter obscurity and poverty and nothingness. He descends all the way down for us. And it just gets worse. He grows up and he's despised, like the prophet said, and he's rejected and he's maligned and he is slandered and his friends betray him and his enemies want to kill him and his enemies actually do kill him. All these things happen. So this baby that was wrapped in swaddling cloths and placed in a manger grew up and was crucified and wrapped in cloths once again and placed in a tomb. That's what he did. But God raises him from the dead, giving him power, victory over over death, over Satan, over sin, over all the brokenness and darkness, over all these things. And that's why the gospel is good news to us, because it's God's grace to us, because he descends down. He came and got you. He didn't wait for you to find your way up to him or discover who he is. No, he moved first. He came and got you. And he descends down into utter brokenness and poverty and obscurity. He's rejected. He's maligned. He lived in Nazareth. Just like the prophet said, he'd be called a Nazarene. He'd be one who would be so utterly useless in the world's eyes, yet he was the king of glory. That's gospel grace for you right there. That our God came to us and descended down to us into brokenness. Here's how Paul talked about this to the Corinthians. He says, for you, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace. Here's what the grace is. That though he was rich, meaning he was in heaven before the world was, in, the, in glory with the Father. He's one with the Father. He's God. The Son has all authority and power, all these things. He was rich, yet, he became, yet for your sake he became poor. He descends down. He moves into Nazareth for 30 years just waiting for the time when he would come on the scene and do, uh, do what God called him to do. He became poor for your sake so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He gives up everything. He loses everything. He empties himself, Philippians 2 uh, says. He pours himself out. He becomes a servant. He becomes obedient to the point of death, as he was talking about. He dies for us. That's the grace that you and I now have. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a pastor in London for years at Westminster Chapel, he said somewhat provocatively, he said, um, you know, all religions really do lead you to God. He says, just name one, all religions out there in the world, they actually do lead you to God. You can get to God through them. He says, they lead you right to his judgment seat. They only get you the wrath of God. But Christianity, you get the grace of God. With the gospel, there's grace. There is a God who now, because of the, all the work his son has done for us, he leaps off the porch and he comes after us. He comes and gets us. He clothes us in his righteousness and kindness and grace. Now we are forever under his smile. You have God's approval. You have God's pleasure. You have God's smile over your life. And if you have that, what else do you need? So if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to tell you that this is what you're offered in Christianity. The gospel offers you something that nothing in this world can offer, which is a place at the table. God has set this table for you, and there is room for you. You can taste and see how good this God is. If you are a Christian, this is what you have. 
You have this grace, this God that despite your brokenness, God knowing all the ways you would betray him and run from him, he ran out to you and laid his life down and gave up what he treasured and prized the most, which was his own son, for you. And so is that, is that coursing through your veins this morning? That filling your life with hope and with joy and with meaning? And is that why you wake up in the mornings and get out of bed and walk through this life with joy? Is this what's motivating that? Because if you have this, if you are this rich in God, you have everything. What else, what else could you need in this life? This is why you have this grace and you have this promise of hope and that's why everyone should run to him, fall in love with him and pursue him with all of our might. Let me pray for us and we'll sing together. Father, I thank you that you have not left us. God, that you have not left us wandering in darkness and just left to our own sin, to our own wisdom, to our own devices. But God, you have, you have sent your promise one to us. God, we didn't deserve him. There's nothing in our life that would merit him coming to us in this way. Jesus, I thank you that you descended down into utter poverty and brokenness. You took on our humanity. You became like us. You you walked in all of the brokenness that, that we have caused, and you died for us. You gave your very own life for us. May that be what, what causes us to, to recognize how glorious your grace is, to recognize that we now have the Father's acceptance. We have his smile over us. He's not scowling over us. He's not suspicious of us, that we have the this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased um, as the banner over our life right now. God, I want to believe that. I want to believe uh, that, you, that you're enough for me, that God, that you um, love me despite the fact that I am most often um, un- unlovable. God, thank you that you came and got us, that you pursued us, that you saw us a long way off and that you jumped off the porch and you ran to us through Jesus. I want to pray for those who have never confessed Jesus as Lord. God, I pray that today that you would begin to melt the ice a bit in their hearts, that you would grant faith, that you would open eyes, that you would answer questions and that you would lead them to a saving knowledge of your son to recognize that he is enough, that all that they've longed for is actually found in him. God, help us to show this city what it means to live with hope, what it means to walk through chaos and walk through brokenness and not waver and not lose hope and not lose our joy and not lose a sense of of meaning and purpose only because of your son. God, there's no other reason, only because of him, we still have hope. God, show our city what that looks like through us. Jesus, we love you. Uh, We wanna now worship Um, and treasure and sing to you. And we ask all these things in your great name. Amen.